Chapter 9 of In Freedom's Cause. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. In Freedom's Cause by G. A. Henty. Chapter 9 The Battle of Stirling Bridge. Upon rejoining his force, Sir William Wallace called a few knights and gentlemen who were with him together and said to them, Methinks, gentlemen, that the woes of this contest should not fall upon one side only. Every one of you here are outlawed, and if you are taken by the English will be executed or thrown into prison for life, and your lands and all belonging to you forfeited. It's time that those who fight upon the other side should learn that they too run some risk. Besides leading his vassals in the field against us, Sir John Kerr twice in arms has attacked me, and done his best to slay me or deliver me over to the English. He fell yesterday by my hand at Stirling, and I hereby declare forfeit the land which he held in the county of Lanark, part of which he wrongly took from Sir William Forbes, and his own fife adjoining. Other broad lands he owns in Ayrshire, but these I will not now touch. But the lands in Lanark, both his own fife and that of the Forbeses, I, as warden of Scotland, hereby declare forfeit and confiscated, and bestow them upon my good friend Sir Archie Forbes. Sir John Graham, do you proceed to-morrow with five hundred men, and take possession of the hold of the Kerrs? Sir Alan Kerr is still at Stirling, and will not be there to defend it. Like enough the vassals will make no resistance, but will gladly accept the change of masters. The Kerrs have the reputation of being hard lords, and their vassals cannot like being forced to fight against the cause of their country. The hired men-at-arms may resist, but you will know how to make short work of these." I ask you to go rather than Sir Archibald Forbes, because I would not that it were said that he took the Kerr's hold on his private quarrel. When you've captured it, you shall take a hundred picked men as a garrison. The place is strong. Your new possessions, Archie, will, as you know, be held on doubtful tenure. If we conquer, and Scotland is freed, I doubt in any way that the king, whoever he may be, will confirm my grant. If the English win, your land is lost, be it an acre or a county. And now let me be the first to congratulate you on having won by your sword and your patriotism the lands of your father, and on having repaid upon your family's enemies the measure which they meted to you. But you will still have to beware of the Kerrs. They are a powerful family, being connected by marriage with the commons of Badenoch and other noble houses. Their lands in air are as extensive as those in Lanark, even with your father's lands added to their own. However, if Scotland win the day, the good work that you have done should well outweigh all the influence which they might bring to bear against you. And now, Archie, I can for a time release you. Ere long Edward's army will be pouring across the border, and then I shall need every good Scotchman's sword. Till then you had best retire to your new estates and spend the time in preparing your vassals to follow you in the field, and in putting one or other of your castles in the best state of defence you may." Methinks that the Kerr's hold may be more easily be made to withstand a lengthened siege than Glen Cairn, seeing that the latter is commanded by the hill beside it. Kerr's castle, too, is much larger and more strongly fortified. Oh, I need no thanks, he continued, as Archie was about to express his warm gratitude. It is the Warden of Scotland who rewards your services to the country, but Sir William Wallace will not forget how you twice stood beside him against overwhelming odds and how yesterday in Stirling it was your watchful care and thoughtful precaution which alone saved his life. Archie's friends all congratulated him warmly, and the next morning with his own band he started for Glen Cairn. Here the news that he was once more their lawful chief caused the greatest delight. 
It was evening when he reached the village, and soon great bonfires blazed in the street, and as the news spread, burned up from many an outlying farm. Before night all the vassals of the estate came in, and Glencairn and the village was a scene of great enthusiasm. Much as Archie regretted that he could not establish himself in the hold of his father, he felt that Wallace's suggestion was the right one. Glencairn was a mere shell, and could in no case be made capable of a prolonged resistance by a powerful force, whereas the castle of the Kerrs was very strong. It was a disappointment to his retainers when they heard that he could not at once return among them, but they saw the force of his reasons, and he promised that if Scotland was freed and peace restored, he would again make Glencairn habitable and pass some of his time there. In the meantime, he said, I shall be but eight miles from you, and the estate will be all one. But now I hope that for the next three months every man among you will aid me, some by personal labour, some by sending horses and carts, in the work of strengthening to the utmost my new castle of Aberfilly, which I wish to make so strong that it will long resist an attack. Should Scotland be permanently conquered, which may God forfend, it could not, of course, be held, but should we have temporary reverses, we might well hold out until our party again gathers head. Every man on the estate promised his aid to an extent far beyond that which Archie, as their feudal superior, had a right to demand from them. They had had a hard time under the Kerrs, who had raised all rents, and greatly increased their feudal services. They were sure of good treatment should the Forbeses make good their position as their lords, and were ready to make any sacrifices to aid them to do so. Next morning a messenger arrived from Sir John Graham, saying that he had during the night stormed Aberfilly, and that with scarce an exception all the vassals of the Kerrs, when upon his arrival on the previous day they had learned of his purpose in coming, and of the disposition which Wallace had made of the estate, had accepted the change with delight, and had joined him in the assault upon the castle, which was defended only by thirty men-at-arms. These had all been killed, and Sir John invited Archie to ride over at once and take possession. This he did, and found that the vassals of the estate were all gathered at the castle to welcome. He was introduced to them by Sir John Graham, and they received Archie with shouts of enthusiasm, and all swore obedience to him as their feudal lord. Archie promised them to be a kind and lenient chief, to abate any unfair burdens which had been laid upon them, and to respect all their rights. But, he said, just at first I must ask for sacrifices from you. This castle is strong, but it must be made much stronger, and must be capable of standing a continued siege, in case temporary reverses should enable the English to endeavour to retake it for their friend Sir Alan Kerr. My vassals at Glencairn have promised an aid far beyond that which I can command, and I trust that you will also extend your time of feudal service, and promise you a relaxation in future years equivalent to the time you may now give. The demand was readily assented to, for the tenants of Aberfilly were no less delighted than those of Glencairn to escape from the rule of the Kerrs. Archie, accompanied by Sir John Graham, now made an inspection of the walls of his new hold. It stood just where the counties of Linlithgow and Edinburgh joined that of Lanark. It was built on an island on a tributary of the Clyde. The stream was but a small one, and the island had been artificially made, so that the stream formed a moat on either side of it, the castle occupying a knoll of ground which rose somewhat abruptly from the surrounding country. The moat was but twelve feet wide, and Archie and Sir John decided this should be widened to fifty feet, and deepened to ten, and that a dam should be built just below the castle to keep back the stream and fill the moat. The walls should everywhere be raised ten feet, several strong additional flanking towers added, and a work built beyond the moat to guard the head of the drawbridge. 
With such additions, Aberfilly would be able to stand a long siege by any force which might assail it. Timber, stones, and rough labor there were in abundance, and Wallace had insisted upon Archie's taking from the treasures which had been captured from the enemy a sum of money which would be ample to hire skilled masons from Lanark, and to pay for the cement, iron, and other necessaries which would be beyond the resources of the estate. These matters in train, Archie rode to Lanark and fetched his proud and rejoicing mother from Sir Robert Gordon's back to Aberfilly. She was accompanied by Sandy Graham and Elspie, the former Archie appointed major-domo, and to be in command of the garrison whenever he should be absent. The vassals were as good as their word. For three months the work of digging, quarrying, cutting, and squaring timber and building went on without intermission. There were upon the estates fully three hundred able-bodied men, and the work progressed rapidly. When, therefore, Archie received a message from Wallace to join him near Stirling, he felt that he could leave Aberfilly without any fear of a successful attack being made upon it in his absence. There was need, indeed, for all the Scotch capable of bearing arms to gather round Wallace. Under the Earl of Surrey, the High Treasurer Cressingham, and other leaders, an army of fifty thousand foot and a thousand horse were advancing from Berwick, while eight thousand foot and three hundred horse under Earl Percy advanced from Carlisle. Wallace was besieging the castle of Dundee when he heard of their approach, and leaving the people of Dundee to carry on the siege under the command of Sir Alexander Scrimgeour, he himself marched to defend the only bridge by which Edward could cross the Forth, near Stirling. Thus far Surrey had experienced no resistance, and the head of so large and well-appointed a force he might well feel sure of success. A large proportion of his army consisted of veterans inured to service in wars at home, in Wales, and with the French, while the mail-clad knights and men-at-arms looked with absolute contempt upon the gathering which was opposed to them. This consisted solely of popular levies of men who had left their homes and taken up arms for the freedom of their country. They were rudely armed and hastily trained. Of all the feudal nobles of Scotland who should have led them, but one, Sir Andrew Moray, was present. Their commander was still little more than a youth, who, great as was his individual valour and prowess, and had no experience in the art of war on a large scale, while the English were led by a general whose fame was known throughout Europe. The Scots took up their station upon the high ground north of the Forth, protected from observation by the precipitous hill immediately behind Cambuskenneth Abbey, and known as the Abbey Craig. In a bend of the river, opposite the Abbey Craig, stood the bridge by which the English army were preparing to cross. Archie stood beside Wallace on the top of the craig, looking at the English array. Ah, it's a fair sight, Archie said, the great camp, with its pavilions, its banners, and pennons lying there in the valley, with the old castle rising on the lofty rock behind them. It's a pity that such a sight should bode evil to Scotland. Yes, Wallace said, I would that the camp lay where it is, but that the pennons and banners be those of Scotland's nobles, and that the royal lions floated over Surrey's tent. True, that were a sight which would glad a Scot's heart. Then shall we see aught like it? <laughs> However, Archie, he went on in a lighter tone, he thinks that that will be a rare camp to plunder. Archie laughed. Ah, one must kill the lion before one talks of dividing his skin, he said. And truly it seems well nigh impossible that such a following as yours, true Scots and brave men though they be, yet altogether undisciplined and new to war, should be able to bear the brunt of such a battle. You're thinking of Dunbar, Wallace said and did we fight in such a field our chances would be poor. But with that broad river in front and but a narrow bridge for access, 
he thinks that we can render an account of them. God grant it be so, Archie replied, but I shall be right glad when the day is over. Three days before the battle, the Stuart of Scotland, the Earl of Lennox, and others of the Scotch magnates entered Surrey's camp, and begged that he would not attack until they tried to induce the people to lay down their arms. They returned, however, on the third day, saying that they would not listen to them, but that the next day they would themselves join his army with their men-at-arms. On leaving the camp that evening, the Scotch nobles, riding homeward, had a broil with some English soldiers, of whom one was wounded by the Earl of Lennox. News being brought to Surrey, he resolved to wait no longer, but gave orders that the assault should take place on the following morning. At daybreak of the 11th of September, 1297, one of the outposts woke Wallace with the news that the English were crossing the bridge. The troops were at once got under arms, and were eager to rush down to commence the battle, but Wallace restrained them. Five thousand Welsh foot-soldiers crossed the bridge, then there was a pause, and none were seen following them. "'Were we to charge down now, Sir William,' Archie said, "'surely we might destroy that body before aid could come to them.' "'We could do, Archie, as you say,' Wallace replied, "'but such a success would be of little worth. They would harm rather than benefit us, for Surrey, learning that we are not altogether to be despised, as he now believes, would be more prudent in future, and would keep his army in the flat country, where we could do naught against it. Now to win much one must risk much, and we must wait until half Surrey's army is across before we venture down against them. Presently the Welsh were seen to retire again. Their movement had been premature. Surrey was still asleep, and nothing could be done until he woke. When he did so, the army armed leisurely, after which Surrey bestowed the honour of knighthood upon many young aspirants, the number of the Scots under Wallace is not certainly known. The majority of the estimates place it below twenty thousand, and as the English historian who best describes the battle speaks of it as the defeat of the many by the few, it can certainly be assumed they did not exceed this number. Only on the ground of his utter contempt for the enemy can the conduct of the Earl of Surrey in attempting to engage in such a position be understood. The bridge was wide enough for but two or at most three horsemen to cross abreast and when those who had crossed were attacked, assistance could reach them but slowly from the rear. The English knights and men-at-arms, with the royal standard and the banner of the Earl of Surrey, crossed first. The men-at-arms were followed by the infantry, who, as they passed, formed up on the tongue of land formed by the winding of the river. When half the English army had passed, Wallace gave the order to advance. First Sir Andrew Moray, with two thousand men, descended the hills farther to the right, and on seeing these the English cavalry charged at once against them. The instant they did so, Wallace, with his main army, poured down from the crag impetuously, and swept away the English near the head of the bridge, taking possession of the end, and by showers of arrows and darts preventing any more from crossing. By this manoeuvre the whole of the English infantry who had crossed were cut off from their friends and enclosed in the narrow promontory. The English men-at-arms had succeeded in overthrowing the Scots, against whom they had charged, and had pursued them some distance, but upon drawing rein and turning to rejoin the army, they found the aspect of affairs changed, indeed. The troops left at the head of the bridge were overthrown and destroyed. The royal banner and that of Surrey were down, and the bridge in the possession of the enemy. The men-at-arms charged back, and strove in vain to recover the head of the bridge. The Scots fought stubbornly. Those in front made a hedge of pikes, while those behind hurled darts and poured showers of arrows into the English ranks. The greater proportion of the men-at-arms were killed. One valiant knight alone, Sir Marmaduke de Twing, with his nephew and a squire, cut their way through the Scots and crossed the bridge. 
Many were drowned in attempting to swim the river. One only succeeded in so gaining the opposite side. The men-at-arms defeated, Wallace and the chosen band under him, who had been engaged with them, joined those who were attacking the English and Welsh, now cooped up in the promontory. Flushed with the success already gained, the Scots were irresistible, and almost every man who had crossed was either killed or drowned in attempting to swim the river. No sooner had he seen that the success in this quarter was secure, than Wallace led a large number of his followers across the bridge. Here the English, who still outnumbered his army, and who had now all the advantage of position which had previously been on the side of the Scots, might have defended the bridge, or, in good order, have given him battle on the other side. The sight, however, of the terrible disaster which had befallen nearly half their number before their eyes, without their being able to render them the slightest assistance, had completely demoralized them. And as soon as the Scotch were seen to be crossing the bridge, they fled in terror. A hot pursuit was kept up by the fleet-footed and lightly armed Scots, and great numbers of fugitives were slain. More than twenty thousand English perished in the battle or flight, and the remainder crossed the border a mere herd of broken fugitives. The Earl of Surrey, before riding off the field, committed the charge of the castle of Stirling to Sir Marmaduke de Twing, promising him that he would return to his relief within ten weeks at the utmost. All the tents, wagons, horses, provisions, and stores of the English fell into the hands of their enemies, and every Scotch soldier obtained rich booty. Cressingham was among the number killed. It said by one English historian, and his account has been copied by many others, that Cressingham's body was flayed and his skin divided among the Scots, but there appears no good foundation for that story, although probably Cressingham, who had rendered himself peculiarly obnoxious and hateful to the Scots, was hewn in pieces. But even were it proved that the ill story is a true one, it need excite no surprise, seeing the wholesale slaying, plundering, and burning which had been carried on by the English, and that the Scottish prisoners falling into their hands were often mutilated and tortured before being executed and quartered. The English historians were fond of crying out that the Scotch were a cruel and barbarous people whenever they retaliated for the treatment which they suffered, but so far from this being the case it is probable that the Scotch, before the first invasion of Edward, were more enlightened and, for their numbers, a more well-to-do people than the English. They had for many years enjoyed peace and tranquillity, and under the long and prosperous reign of Alexander had made great advances, while England had been harassed by continuous wars and troubles at home and abroad. Its warlike barons, when not engaged under its monarchs in wars in Wales, Ireland, and France, occupied themselves in quarrels with each other, or in struggles against the royal supremacy, and although the higher nobles, with their mail-clad followers, could show an amount of chivalrous pomp unknown in Scotland, yet the condition of the middle classes and of the agricultural population was higher in Scotland than in England. Archie, as one of the principal leaders of the victorious army, received a share of the treasure captured in the camp, sufficient to repay the money which he had had for the strengthening of the castle of Aberfilly, and on the day following the battle he received permission from Sir William to return at once, with the two hundred fifty retainers which he had brought into the field, to complete the rebuilding of the castle. In another three months this was completed, and stores of arms and munitions of all kinds collected. Immediately after the defeat at Stirling Bridge, King Edward summoned the Scottish nobles to join Brian Fitzalan, whom he appointed Governor of Scotland, with their whole forces for the purpose of putting down the rebellion. Among those addressed as Edward's allies were the Earls Common of Badenoch, Common of Buchan, Patrick of Dunbar, Umfravel of Angus, Alexander of Menteith, Meliste of Strathairn, 
Malcolm of Lennox, and William of Sutherland, together with James the Stuart, Nicholas de la Haye, Ingelram de Umfraville, Richard Fraser, and Alexander de Lindsay of Crawford. From this enumeration it is clear that Wallace had still many enemies to contend with at home, as well as the force of England. Patrick of Dunbar, assisted by Robert Bruce and Bishop Anthony Beck, took the field, but was defeated. Wallace captured all the castles of the Earl save Dunbar itself, and forced him to fly to England. Then the Scotch army poured across the border and retaliated upon the northern counties for the deeds which the English had been performing in Scotland for the last eight years. The country was ravaged to the very walls of Durham and Carlisle, and only those districts which bought off the invaders were spared. The title which had been bestowed upon Wallace by a comparatively small number was now ratified by the commonality of the whole of Scotland, and associated with him was the young Sir Andrew Moray of Bothwell, whose father had been the only Scotch noble who had fought at Stirling. And it's notable that in some of the documents of the time, Wallace gives precedence to Andrew Moray. They proceeded to effect a military organization of the country, dividing it up into districts, each with commanders and lieutenants. Order was established and negotiations entered for the mutual safeguard of traitors with the Hans towns. The nobles who ventured to oppose the authority of Wallace and his colleague were punished in some cases by the confiscation of lands, which were bestowed upon Sir Alexander Scrimgeour and other loyal gentlemen, and these grants were recognized by Bruce when he became king. In these deeds of grant, Wallace and Moray, although acting as governors of Scotland, state that they do so in the name of Balliol as king, although a helpless captive in England. For a short time Scotland enjoyed peace, save that Earl Percy responded to the raids made by the Scots across the border by carrying fire and sword through Annandale, and the English writers who complain of the conduct of the Scots have no word of reprobation for the proclamation issued to the soldiers on crossing the border that they were free to plunder where they chose, nor as to the men and women slain on the villages and churches committed to the flames. End of chapter 9 The Battle of Stirling Bridge Recording by Mike Harris